Well, we have a long passage this morning again, 1 Kings 22, verses 1 through 40. And Ahab, you remember, had made a deal with Aram that they would be at peace with one another. That's how our passage starts off. And you have to remember that Ramoth Gilead was under Aram's control at this time. So for Ahab to attack Ramoth Gilead is for him to break the peace treaty that he had made with Aram. Okay? So there's some simple facts like that that we need to make sure we get straight and if we're going to clearly understand this passage. There's also some background that uh, could be included here, but isn't. Now, when we get to the very end of the passage that we read, verse 39 says, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house which he built, and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So the person under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who is recording this history for us, has decided that there's a lot of things that could have been included that aren't necessary for the point at hand. So this story is drawn out from Ahab's life and put before us of how he dies and why he dies so that we would understand what was going on not in the entirety of Ahab's life, because we have been given this particular story for a particular purpose. So let's see what else there is in here that we can draw out compared to previous weeks where we've been studying Ahab and his life and the prophecies that have come to him for the last several weeks. But before we get into that, I do want to just tell you one of those little facts that has been left out by this passage, okay? Ahab, and we know this uh, not from the Bible, not from Chronicles or Kings, uh, but from historical sources outside of the Bible, historical records from kingdoms at that time, Ahab had been part of a coalition to fight against the Assyrians, and he had brought the largest army from a group of kings who were bringing armies to fight against Assyria. They had been successful, and uh, that would have been right around the time that this happened. So Ahab comes back from that, more than likely. And the reason I tell you that, even though the biblical author didn't see it necessary, is because I want you to realize... Some of, the, uh, some of the, the rest of life that's going on. And the biblical author does too, even as it gets to the end. And we read that the rest of the acts of Ahab, all that he did, the ivory house which he built, all the cities which he built. The biblical author does want you to know, Ahab was outwardly, a very successful king. Ahab was the guy you wanted to be under at that time. He was winning. 
building cities is an indication of a thriving kingdom at that time. Ivory was not cheap even then. It was a precious, precious commodity. And so what did he do with it? He built an ivory house. That's something, isn't it? And then he was victorious with a coalition of other kings. And so I want you to see, he comes back from that and he's riding high, right? His life has been a success. His kingdom is a success. His army is a success. He's wealthy. He has what we want in kings. But that's not what the biblical author focuses on. The biblical author focuses on what we need to know about Ahab. Not that he wasn't successful in those things. He was. The author acknowledges it and says, essentially, but that's not important. What's important is what I have given you. What's important is what I have recorded. All those other things, yeah, you mean you can read those if you want. But listen, here's what happened to Ahab. Here's what Ahab did that matters. And what was it that Ahab did that mattered? He refused to listen to the word of the Lord. He refused to listen to the word of the Lord. That's what ends up defining Ahab's life. And what happens to Ahab because of that? He dies. He suffers the consequences that God had promised would come to him. The curse that God had warned him about came down on his head. Ahab stiffened his neck against God's word and God's word destroyed him. We've just read the passage. I know it was kind of long, so let's make sure we remember the basic story. You've got two kings together. Israel and Judah. Once again, an indication of success. Judah and Israel are no longer fighting with one another, but they are fighting on each other's side. The two kings are together in peace. That's not something to take lightly, right? After we've seen brother fighting against brother, after we've seen the the wars that have happened between the two kingdoms, the divided kingdom, north and south, Now, they have been allied. And that relationship has been strengthened and set in place more firmly by what? Do any of you kids know? How did they they confirm that alliance? It's a classic way. It's happened for millennia now. What did they do? They brought the two families together, the two kings, and they said, let's find two people to marry. So they married the son 
of the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, to the daughter of the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. So now Judah's crown prince is married to the princess of Israel, Athaliah. (laughs) Of all the terrible decisions in life to marry your son to the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. This king was a fool. This king of Judah. What a foolish man. And yet, it seems so obvious to do, doesn't it? Bring peace. Establish peace between the two kingdoms. Unite their armies. They'll be so much stronger if they're together. They'll be so much safer against Assyria, against Babylon, against these other kingdoms that are rising in power. If they can be on the same side with one another. Makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Listen, kids. I don't care how much sense it makes to you to marry somebody who hates God. You may never do it. From the very beginning, God has warned his people not to marry those who are outside of his kingdom. That we are not to be unequally yoked. And when we continue through this history, we'll see the disaster that that marriage causes for the kingdom of Judah. Athaliah was truly a disaster. But we're not there yet. Right now, I just want you to see, here's this king. Two kings, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. And Jehoshaphat is down visiting the in-laws, right? And Ahab is riding high on victory. He knows his army is strong. He knows that they're experienced, that they've been successful. And so what does he do? He suggests to his new friend, new relation, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, hey, let's work together. Take back that city. Ignoring the fact that he'd made a peace treaty, right? Of course, also, the king of Aram hadn't kept his word in giving back the cities that they were, he was supposed to, right? So Ahab is, what? Well, he's a fool in making the peace treaty in the first place. We saw that a few weeks back knowing that the king of Aram couldn't be trusted. But then he breaks the treaty. He wants to break the treaty. Jehoshaphat says, sounds good to me, but 
Fool though he is, he knows there's a good tradition. And the tradition is, let's ask the prophets to tell us what God says before we throw our armies at this problem. Tradition that many more foolish kings had forgotten. A tradition that even the people of Israel as they were entering the land forgot at one time. That was part of why it became such an ingrained tradition. You remember when they were tricked into making a peace treaty without having inquired of the Lord first. People claimed that they were from far away, but actually they were the next city over. So here, Jehoahaz, I mean Jehoshaphat <clears throat> says, let's inquire of the Lord. So here come the prophets. 400 prophets speaking for Yahweh, the Lord. Not for Baal or Asherah. These are not the prophets of Baal. These are not the prophets of Asherah. These are prophets that claim to be speaking for Yahweh. These probably would have been uh, people who were directly connected to the worship that had been going on in the northern kingdom of Israel since the kingdom split. So they were worshipers of the golden calves, which they claimed was how they were going to worship Yahweh. In other words, they claim to be prophets of the Lord, but they are not true prophets of the Lord, right? What I want you to see, though, is that it's not very easy to simply dismiss 400 prophets all in unanimous agreement, all claiming to be speaking for the Lord, all saying, yes, you will be victorious. And again, Jehoshaphat there's no way of calling him anything but a fool in this chapter. Nevertheless, he smells a rat. All these prophets seem unanimous, yes, but there's something just not quite right about them. Like they're all a group I don't trust that. Isn't there one more prophet? Isn't there any other prophet of the Lord that we could... Add? Well, yeah, there's Micaiah. I hate that guy. Why does Ahab hate Micaiah? Yeah, go ahead, you can answer. He thinks he always speaks bad stuff about the king, right? He thinks 
that Micaiah has a personal problem with him. He thinks that Micaiah is out to get him. He thinks that Micaiah just has a vendetta, that he doesn't like Ahab, and so he's always trying to cause problems. Isn't it easy for us to blame personal animosity for things that prophets speak that we don't like? Oh, well, you know him. He's, he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's just jealous of the prophets, he, 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 of the other prophets, you know. He... You know, he's, he's one of those discernment guys. He's always seeing the negative. He's never seeing the positive. He could find, he could find a flaw in the most perfect plan. Nothing is ever good enough for him. He's never thankful for the good that's being done. He only ever sees the bad. He's such a downer. That's Micaiah. Oh man, what are we going to do about Micaiah? Granted, I mean, he always, he's always right. Come on, lighten up. What is the problem with Micaiah? After all, think about all the prophets. All the prophets say they're going to win. All the prophets say this is going to be good. All the prophets say there's going to be victory. And they're not just making things up. They're speaking from the word of the Lord. They're speaking about prophets, about prophecies that have come in the past. Listen to Deuteronomy 33, 17. Well, Joseph is blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, two of the leading tribes of Israel. Here's what He says, as the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. And his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them, he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. Go up! These are the horns with which you will destroy, which with which you will push the people out of your way. The prophets are quoting Scripture for their claim. And then Micaiah comes and Micaiah says, nope, it's not going to work that way. Nope, that's not what's going to happen. Nope, God has not said that. 
God has said this, and of course, the this is precisely what Ahab didn't want to hear. Again. Once again. Both claim to be speaking God's words. How can you know who is right? Well, Ahab knows who's right. Ahab isn't an idiot. He just doesn't like what Micaiah has to say. He knows Micaiah gives him the word of the Lord. But Ahab doesn't fear God. That's the problem at the root. The root of the problem is not Micaiah or the prophets, or being able to tell who is who or what is what. The root of the problem is Ahab doesn't fear God. And so he doesn't care who's telling the truth about what God has said. He has an agenda. He has something that he has decided he is going to do, and he is simply going to do it no matter what. He's going to look for justification. He's going to look for biblical quotes. Yes. But in the end, if God has said, don't go up and do it, if you do, you'll be destroyed, he's going to say, eh, I can figure out a way around that. The consequences? Eh, you know, I know God said that, but I can find a way around it. Ahab knows, but he doesn't care. And poor, silly, sad, foolish Jehoshaphat. He cares about God's word. He's the one who insisted, let's get all the prophets. Let's hear what the last one has to say. But he doesn't listen much more than Ahab. And he's allied himself by marriage to Ahab. And he's said, my people are as your people, my chariots as your chariots, I'm with you. you got to keep that alliance strong, right? Well, Ahab has now received three judgments from the Lord, as we've studied. This is the third one from Micaiah. The second one was from Elijah. The first one was from an unnamed prophet. And now he suffers the judgment. Everything else he accomplished might have been amazing, might have seemed very successful, but it doesn't mean much to the biblical author, does it? What matters is whether Micaiah hears and listens to the word of the Lord. Whether Ahab hears and listens. The prophet has spoken, and what he says is, wait and see. We will see which is which, right? 
400 prophets have said, you will be successful. One prophet has said, you will not be successful. You will die. That's what will happen. Who was right? Micaiah was right. The one prophet was right. What are we to make of this? Well, I started off by saying those who stiffen their neck against God's word will be destroyed under it. The consequences of refusing to hear God's word over and over and over again, refusing to live according to it, the consequences come. Eventually, God's patience comes to an end. And so, it doesn't matter the scheme that Ahab has for how he's going to stay alive. Scheme seems great. And Jehoshaphat, once again, what an idiot. Really? You want me to dress up as you, the hated king? The one who's breaking the alliance? Okay, sounds good. And yet God doesn't allow him to die. And instead, God brings about the completion of his plan. Which is that Ahab will not only die, but the dogs will lick up his blood. Where... They licked up the blood of the man he murdered, Naboth, for a little piece of property he wanted to put a garden in. God's judgment comes. A certain man drew his bow at random. Let's get another arrow up in the air. Just let it go. The enemy's that way. And who does it strike? disguised, protected Ahab. Why? Because God is in control. Because God is to be feared. Because God is not to be trifled with. Because we may not reject his word. And so Micaiah is proved right. If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. Listen, all you people. That is the test of the prophet. If it comes to pass, it is from the Lord. If it does not come to pass, it is not from the Lord. And so you have Micaiah proved right while under arrest, being held on bread and water until the king returns safely. The king who he knows will never return safely. So what are we to make of Ahab? Ahab 
was double-minded, wasn't he? Last week, we saw him humbling himself when he was given the judgment. This week, we see him refusing to humble himself, right? It's sad. Isn't it interesting? Here comes this judgment from the Lord. You know, it's, it's simple. Do this and you'll die. The alternative is to humble himself and to say, oh, I thought I had a strong enough army to take Ramoth Gilead, but God has said, that'll be the death of me. So I guess I won't. And to just stop. That's it. All he has to do is not go up. It's not a huge burden, is it? But he's proud. He's proud. Well, there's one last thing that we should address in this passage. This strange picture that Micaiah gives us of the throne room of heaven. Verse 19, I hear the word of the Lord. There I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. What do you think of God there? doesn't seem like he gave Ahab much of a chance, does it? You will go up and deceive, entice, and succeed. The Lord has proclaimed disaster against you, Micaiah says. What Micaiah is saying here is, you will go up and fight Ramoth-Gilead. You must not, and yet you will. That's crazy, isn't it? You must not, and yet you will. Because the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So now, here's an example of a place where the men who are to be speaking God's word to his people face a temptation. The temptation is to say, well, 
You know, I know it sounds like God was being unfair here, but let's explain it away in such a way that nobody will think that there's any difficulty in accepting God as good, as loving, as just. Let's explain it away so that we don't have to say God has actually proclaimed disaster against Ahab ahead of time before Ahab made his choice. Let's fix it so that it doesn't sound like God has made automatons. Let's fix it so it doesn't sound like Ahab doesn't have free will here. But isn't it clear? You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. God has chosen. This is going to be the end of Ahab's life. Disaster has been proclaimed against him. This is the end. And yet, what does he do? He gives him this prophecy. He gives him the true word of the Lord. He does not leave him simply with the 400 prophets being a deceiving spirit in their mouths, enticing him to destruction. He gives him and us clear picture of what God has actually said and what the enticing spirit has said. A clear picture of what has happened in the throne room of heaven. He lays it out there for everybody to see and he gives Ahab the choice in the end, doesn't he? And Ahab chooses to reject the warning and to throw himself headlong into the destruction that God has proclaimed for him. Yes, God has proclaimed destruction against him and Ahab runs headlong into it, doesn't he? So, Here's the thing. You have a choice. Just like Ahab had a choice. He could have not gone up to Ramoth Gilead, right? And you have a choice. And God's throne room has been revealed. The end of what is coming. We sang about it in the first song. Behold your king. He's standing there. Can you go back to that for me, Hugh? Go back to the beginning because the song tells a story. There we go. Thank you. And what is the story? The story is the king comes and he's in a manger. He's a baby. And then what? Go to the next slide. 
with his first breath, he mocks the proud and kisses death. How does he kiss death? Because he's become man, mortal. Man dies. How is that mocking the proud? By his humility, he comes as a baby. The king, the creator of the universe, comes as a little baby. He's coming to reign supreme. And that's where the song ends. Keep going. He's only crowned with hay, but the heavens bow. Some will scorn and some will praise. That's the question. That's what Ahab shows us. That's why the biblical author sets it before us. There's no question about what's being done. There's no question of what's going on in heaven. There's no question of what God has decided to do. It's written in his word. Keep going. Now he's crowned with thorns. He's suffering the penalty that our sins deserve. Is it, is it at all unclear what God has chosen to do? He has chosen to send his only begotten son to die for the sins of his people. It's not unclear at all, is it? It's laid out explicitly in his word, and yet some will reject him. And some will praise him. Keep going. Keep going. Now he dies. This is the final completion of the punishment, the wrath of God being poured out. One more. And now what? He's no longer dead. He's alive. What more could you ask for from your king? What more could you ask for for the one who demands your obedience, for the one who demands that you worship him? He has died for your sins and he has risen from the dead. Worship him. That's all Ahab had to do. Worship the Lord and you're safe. Worship the Lord and you're safe. Keep going. Jesus reigns over everything. And yet the wicked mock. It hasn't stopped. And it's not a surprise to God either. But the righteous sing. Why? Because sin is dead and we have a king. Keep going. And now here is the judgment. The judgment comes. Just as Ahab was warned by Micaiah, the judgment is coming. If you don't listen, you will die. And here's the warning. Here is the, the message to us. It's the same as the message to Ahab. Behold your king with arms for war. The once slain lamb, the lion's roar. What's that saying? The lamb is a lion the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He pours his wrath on death and sin. That sounds great so far. I mean, the sin part, as long as it's not my sin, right? 
They cannot run. They cannot win. Death cannot win. Sin cannot win. One more. Now it gets a little bit more personal. Behold your king with iron rod. What does the Bible say he'll do with his iron rod? He will crush his enemies to dust beneath his feet. Have you ever used a mortar and a pestle to break something down into dust? Okay, now do it with a whole rod. Smashing, crushing, until there's nothing left but dust. In robes of white, all stained with blood. Whose blood? That's right, his blood. That's right, it's Jesus' blood. And who else's blood? The blood of all his enemies. Washing and sloshing around at his feet. That's what will happen to his enemies. He comes to reign over sea and land. So bow your knee or take your stand. Is that not what we are taught by the story of Ahab with Micaiah coming? Bow your knee or take your stand and see what will happen. And what will happen is not, a, there's no question what will happen. What will happen? Doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter where you run, doesn't matter where you hide. The arrow that God has sent will find you and it will pierce you. Have you no fear of God? Next slide. Yikes, can we just skip this part? I mean, you, you know, right? Like, who decided to include these words? Who decided that we needed to sing about this part of what the Bible says? Behold your king whose sword is drawn to slay that harlot Babylon. I mean, that's kind of crass, isn't it? He comes for war and by his side, the risen saints, his glorious bride. Which do you want to be in? Babylon or the kingdom of God? Oh. Let's be in the kingdom of God. Let's be a part of his bride. That's what the church is. His bride. One more, Hugh. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Sin is dead. Yes, the wicked still mock. But what do we do as people who have put our faith and our trust in God? We sing. We sing hallelujah because sin is dead and death is conquered. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Micaiah has given us such a beautiful, beautiful warning that we are to bow our knee to God 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.